Hello and welcome to Central's podcast. We pray your heart is touched through listening and that it helps you in your walk with Jesus. Today's message is from Pastor Kurt. All right, so I want you to think if you've ever watched a movie that uh, you thought the movie was over and then all the credits ran and for whatever reason you chose to stay in the theater for 15 minutes and watch all those words. And then after the last word went up, a brand new scene came on. Let me see a show of hands. Yeah, a lot of you. Cool. Uh, so I think the very first time that, we, that I, I think that we saw this was during Winnie the Pooh. My kids were much younger back then. Seems like it's gone by too fast. But in this movie, uh, Christopher Robin wrote a note that he was going to be back soon. And the wise, the wise old owl thought that, that, that it said Baxin. And in this whole movie created this monster of the Baxin. And where's the Baxin going to come up? The whole movie doesn't show up. So it's after, and the credits are running, and I don't know what, which one of my kids just wanted to stay through. We stayed through all the words, and then at the very end, guess who shows up? The Baxin. It was this very fun-looking, actually, monster. It, it wasn't real and ended up falling into a pit, and it was over, but it brought completion to the rest of the movie. This is what we're doing today. This is a bonus addition, bonus material to the tent. I thought that the series was over. The credits were rolling, folks. We had Good Friday. We had Easter Sunday morning. But a, a few weeks ago, Michael Cogley mentioned, he's an evangelist who calls Central his home. He mentioned one statement that Jesus said and referred it back to the temple. And I was like, I heard that years ago, but I completely forgot about it. So over the past few weeks, I started restudying it, looking at what Jewish tradition was, uh, what some of the writings were that we've researched for in this specific series, and found out the significance of one statement that Jesus makes to his disciples and what they would have thought about when they heard it through their ears, and we miss it completely when we don't understand this Jewish context. So I know we're past Easter, but we're going to go back to the Last Supper for today. This is in the Gospel of John. Jesus had already eaten with them, washed their feet. They had taken communion. And Jesus is teaching them certain things about how his kingdom works, how his father, God the Father, operates. And he's trying to get all this stuff into them because he knows what's about to happen. He knows that just in a few short hours, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be betrayed. The disciples are going to scatter. And eventually he would end up on the cross. So he's trying to do two things, really. Jesus is trying to comfort them and prepare them for what is to head. And he's trying to inject hope in them, not just for this life, but for the life to come. So again, this is before he was arrested. Uh, this is while they are sitting there at the Last Supper. In John 14, starting at verse 1, Jesus says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. It's pretty simple, pretty clear. This is a command that Jesus is giving to them. Not like the Ten Commandments, like you know the rules in the Old Testament, but this is a command because he is authoritatively saying to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. And I think about, I'll just say this for myself, how many times I can read words like this and not obey them, right? Jesus, your Savior, our Lord and our Savior is telling us, do not let your hearts be troubled. So if he tells us something or commands something, there has to be grace to follow that enables us to actually do that very thing. Does this make sense? So if he's saying, do not let your hearts be troubled, there must be something that the Holy Spirit has given us to face troubling situations and yet not be troubled in it. 
He does not say that we're gonna be put inside of this little safe bubble where nothing bad is ever going to happen. It's always going to be easy. No, he knows what is about to come. And he's, he's preparing them saying, do not let your hearts be troubled. So he goes on to say, you believe in God, believe also in me. It's a little bit different of a phrase if you're like, well, wait a minute, if you believe in God, don't you automatically believe in Jesus? But what, what, what Jesus is saying, you believe that there's a God that exists, but I'm, I'm encouraging you, I'm beckoning you to believe in who I say I am. I want you to understand this. There is a difference between believing in God and believing in Jesus. If you don't trust me, try this. This week, do a little experiment. Ask a whole bunch of people you know, do you believe there's a God? And almost 100% of them will say yes. They believe there's the big man upstairs, the, 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 there's the God of the cosmos, there's a higher power. It's very easy to believe that there's just this creator out there, but they don't believe that he's actually a personal God. So you go a step, they'll be like, yeah, 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 I believe there's a God. Go a step further. Do you believe in Jesus? And now people start to get offended. The name Jesus either brings a lot of reassurance and hope or it brings offense and anger. I mean, just look at what's even happening in our country now and things that are trying to come down to, to, uh, to put tension on the church. It's not just about that there's a God. It's Jesus who we believe in. So there's a difference that if you believe there's a creator, that's great. But Jesus is who must become our Lord and our Savior that ushers us into a right relationship with the Father. Amen? So what we have to understand even in that, like we don't want to approach this casually. Like he's either your Lord or he's not. We don't say like I'm trusting in most of Jesus to be kind of my Savior. Like we can't do that. He's asking us to deny ourselves. Not to think differently about ourselves, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and follow him, to actually die the death, the spiritual death that he died for us on the cross, be buried with him so we can be raised back to life. Like there's no riding the fence here, guys. You're either in or you're out with Jesus. So you should know the answer to that question. Is he your Lord and your Savior? Is he truly in charge of your life? Jesus wanted them to have this reassurance so they could look forward to what's going to happen. In verse two, Jesus begins to explain to them how his father's dwelling place is set up. He begins to talk about how he's going to go into a different dimension, a different realm, a spiritual reality that is outside of this earth. And in verse two, he says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? He says, and if I go to prayer, pre pre prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me so that you will also be where I am. I wanna stop right there. A lot of times when we open our Bible to the New Testament, we like separate it from the Old Testament and we put it in two modern of times. I want you to understand when Jesus walked the earth, it was still the Old Testament Jerusalem streets he was walking in. Does this make sense? Like, it wasn't like, you know, the sun went down and now we're in the New Testament and everything looks different. Now there's cars and Instagram and everything else. No, there's still the chariots and the horses. It's still Old Testament times, but Jesus is now walking the earth to bring the new covenant with him. So I want you to see this. 
these disciples who are learning from a Jewish, what did they call them, master, teacher, rabbi. These are all Jewish learners, okay? So where do you find God if you were a Jew? The temple, yeah. What have we learned about these last seven, eight weeks? The tabernacle, which was then set up as a permanent resting place for the dwelling of God, which was called the temple. So when you're talking about getting close to God or finding God or the room where God is in, 100% of Jewish people in that day would have thought of the most holy place, the one room where God's presence is, where his glory dwelt, where only the high priest could enter into. And now Jesus is telling them, my father's house has many rooms. Like I would have been like, what? I could think of two, the holy place and the most holy place with the court on the outside. And now Jesus is talking about going into this place where God dwells and starting to prepare this dwelling place in this future time, preparing to roll out the welcome carpet for those who would follow Jesus. It's starting to open up a little bit for you. We automatically think, oh, Jesus is, of course, talking about heaven, right? Then if you keep actually reading your Bible and you see at the end, there's a new heaven and a new earth and the city of Jerusalem that descends on there, the people of God dwelling with God. We have to see the fullness of Scripture, but also in context, what they were thinking of is the temple and the most holy place. So he says this, verse 4, you know the way to the place where I'm going. So he's not saying, you know, the place where I'm going. He's saying, you know, you already know this way. So Thomas, who we call Doubting Thomas, he's the one that says, I'll only believe Jesus when I can stick my hands through, uh, through his hand and through his side. Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Thomas was setting his sights on the destination instead of the way. And Jesus was saying, listen, I've already told you, I'm going somewhere where my father dwells to prepare the place. You know the way. He wanted the people to focus on the way and Thomas was focused on the destination. I want you to understand, if you've never been to a place before, the actual way is much more important than the destination. Does this make sense? Like the journey that we're on is very important to actually get us to the place. But so many of us, we just want the destination. Just get me to the place where I can get my reward, my ice cream cone, whatever it is. And we miss the journey. And Jesus is saying, you know the way. And Thomas is like, listen, we don't have a clue where you're going. We don't know what's happening. How are we supposed to know the way? And this is his answer. Jesus answered this, I am the way. I am the way. Even that phrase alone is like weird. How's a person also the pathway? It says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Get us back to the Old Testament times of Jerusalem where his disciples are sitting with him and they know the way to the Father. 
They know it's through the outer courts, through the holy place, and only the high priest can get into the most holy place once a year. They know how this works. They know the regulations, the rules. They know what's been written through the book of Exodus. And now Jesus stands before them and he says, no one gets to him except through me. Now what makes this statement even more profound from what we have learned is in the tradition of the rabbis, the Jewish tradition is this. They actually referred to each of the three entrances as the way, the truth, and the life. And now when they make their statement, and they know what all of their friends say and the worshipers say and the high priests and how the rabbis use this terminology that the entrance into the outer courts was called the way. That the first curtain going into the holy place was called the truth. And the veil that was torn just 18 hours later was called the life. Jesus was not giving us a quotable phrase to put up on Instagram. He wasn't giving pastors a really neat phrase to use at funerals. He was giving them a context that they understood the way, the truth, and the life to get into the glory of God, into relationship with the Father himself was only through Jesus. I mean, this is something very profound and revelatory that he's telling them that we can just gloss over if we go through too quickly and not understand. So look at his very next statement in verse seven. He says, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So what Jesus is saying here is this, as you are interacting with me, with Jesus, and you see what he's saying, you hear, you hear what he's saying, you see what he's doing, you're watching his lifestyle. If you're seeing and watching Jesus, you have seen the Father himself. What's he saying? You know the character of God, the characteristics of God, the nature of God, the love of God, how God would interact in situations, how he would react in situations. You're seeing the Father through the life of Jesus. And yet they're still thinking, wait a minute, there's a veil in between us and God. And only the high priest is allowed to go in there. And Jesus is stretching their mind, stretching their faith on how to conceptualize who this Jesus is and how we can go through him to be with the Father. So let's take a look at these statements, the way, the truth, and the life. The way, this is the initial entrance into the tabernacle. If you remember how it was, there was an outer court, and again, they're dealing with the temple now, not just the tabernacle. But there was an entranceway into these outer courts. In the outer courts, everything was covered in bronze. Bronze represented our humanity and God's judgment on sin. This is where the worshiper would bring the sacrifice would offer the sacrifice on the altar and would receive atonement for their individual sins not for the whole community, just for themselves. So what they're thinking about in this outer court is a reminder that they, they uh, a reminder of their humanity and a reminder that God must judge sin. Okay, so there's a celebration of atonement, but we know it did not last long. Now we know that this entire outer court, this gate, this way 
was the entranceway into salvation. Jesus says it in John chapter 10, verse 9. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and they will find pasture. This is the born again life. This is when you surrender your life to Jesus. But there is more. This is the thing. Whenever you raise your hand, at the end of a service to give your life to Jesus, or maybe one of your friends led you to the Lord, however you came to know him, that's not the end. That's not like I've arrived, I am now born again. That's the beginning of a brand new life with Jesus, right? It's living a life that you know your sins are forgiven. You've been set free from the grip of the enemy and you're now walking at peace with God. So even Paul refers to this in Hebrews 6 of salvation, repentance, turning away from the enemy and your sin as the elementary teachings. He's saying, but there's more. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, it says, therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. Again, think about their mindset. Uh, what the Jewish people thought for over 1,500 years, guys, the outer court, and in the temple, there was the inner court, and then the holy place, and the most holy place. There was forward progress moving toward the glory of God. So what is this? He says, not laying again the foundation. So this was the foundation of our Christian faith. Repentance from acts that lead to death, faith in God, Instruction about cleansing rites, which of course we don't necessarily follow uh, as Gentiles. The laying on of hands, laying your hands on the sick so they would recover. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. These are elementary in faith that we can help disciple people and when they first give their life to Jesus, but then there's more. We are to move forward toward maturity. And that's where this second statement that Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth. Now this is referred to as the holy place. That entrance into the holy place is what the Jewish rabbinical tradition called the truth. Why? This is where the people, through the ministry of the priests, began to understand the truth of fellowship that God wanted to have with them through that table of showbread. The illumination that God wanted to give to our soul through that lampstand, and then how the people of God could actually communicate and pray in that symbolism of the incense rising up before the most holy place. For us, what is that doing? It's teaching us about the truth in the power of communion. It's teaching us what the Holy Spirit has done to us, but how we are called to be the light to a dark world. Amen? And how we can have that relationship, that communion. We can praise and worship our Father, but we can also pray and ask him for things in the name of Jesus. The scripture says this, that the Father gave to the Son, handed the Son the promise of the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus poured out his Spirit upon us. So Jesus gave us the Spirit of truth, the Counselor, the Comforter, the Wise One, all these different names that are given to the, the uh, Holy Spirit throughout Scripture. He's the one living in us, guiding us into all truth. So there's greater things that the Lord wants to bring us into. So Jesus is the way. He's also the truth. 
And then finally, he's the life. But before I get there, I forgot to mention one scripture. What we see happening in the outer courts is everything's covered in bronze. Remember, humanity, judgment of sin. When you get into the holy place, everything's covered in gold, which stands for God's righteousness and purity, okay? Through his righteousness, we become righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. What, ha- what can happen and what happened even early on in the first century is believers would take teachings from the outer court and mix them with teachings from the holy place. And what you start to do is you start mixing in God's judgment upon sin with God's righteousness and you can mix law with grace. And that becomes very dangerous because when you mix teaching law with grace is you start trying to earn your righteousness through good works instead of receiving God's righteousness through grace. And that's what was happening here. So Paul brings very stark correction to them. And I want you to understand this for me too. We we are in partnership with God. We are co-laborers, Scripture says. So we don't just sit back and do nothing, all right? God has gifted you. He's uniquely designed you. You have a calling upon your life, okay? So we do work. We work out our salvation, but we don't do any of these things to earn righteousness from God. There's a big difference. What we do is we receive the grace of God, We become the righteousness of God through Christ. And then out of that, we, in appreciation, in honor of our King, our Lord, we live our life well. There's a complete difference of what your motivation is for working hard. You guys with me? So you live a holy life, absolutely. You turn away from sin. You reject things that the enemy's trying to put in your life. But you do that because you know you are a prized possession of the Most High God. You're not doing it to earn something from him. So in Galatians chapter three, this is what Paul says to this group of believers. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing that you have heard what you have heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by the means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? How have you experienced so much in vain if it really it was in vain? So I ask you again: does God give you his spirit? and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you have heard. So I've talked a lot these last several weeks about the importance of understanding the law, why it was in place. But don't miss, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that we're living by the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus shed his blood so that all of that can be taken away. Now we live by the law of the Spirit, not by the law that is written on stones and tablets. You guys with me? So the law is important to understand. It brings us to a place of death in ourself because it reveals the sin within us. Once we receive Jesus, we live by the Spirit. So Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm going to guide you into the truth And he's also the life. The life was referred to as that veil that was torn between the holy place and the most holy place. 
This place to us, we know it on the other side now, is it represents the finished work of the cross. It re- it, it's even the seat, the covering that was over it was referred to as the mercy seat of God, where that high priest would sprinkle blood on top and in front for the atonement of the sins of all of Israel, that one time a year, where the cherubim would cover over it and overshadow this mercy seat. This is where God met with the high priest. Even when God was instructing Moses what to do with it, it says, there I will meet with you. So this wasn't just the activity of the high priest. This was a personal meeting between man and between God. This is where his presence dwelt. And Jesus is saying, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. I am the way to get into this presence where, it, where, where he dwells. And again, at the moment he's saying this is approximately 18 hours before this curtain rips in two and God is no longer binding himself really within this one space, but now each man and woman would have access to the presence of God himself. I love what David says in Psalm 91. Adam, you can come up at this time. It says this, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High. Now you might think, well, is he talking about a cave? Is he talking about his own little quiet space where he would worship the Lord? Think about what David knew about where God's presence was. It was in the tabernacle at that time. So whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. David got to a point in his life where he could rest. While while he is being chased down by the current king, as he's being chased and and as the king is trying to kill him, he is able to find shelter and find rest in the presence of the Almighty. And he says, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. I think he understood the invitation of what this Ark of the Covenant really was. It's an invitation when we're no longer separated by this, uh, by this veil. We're, we're invited to come in and rest on the mercy seat of God. And I think that's where we miss it sometimes. When we hear words like the abundant life, the fruitful life, Jesus came to give us life. Sometimes we get like, especially in, in Pentecostalism, spirit-filled churches. It's all about what we can do for God and how we can be exuberant and how we can be demonstrative in what we believe and how passionate we can worship. But Jesus taught his disciples in the context of bearing fruit. He said, if you remain in me, I will remain in you. He didn't say, if you work yourself up to a tizzy. He didn't say, if you burn out doing good things. He didn't say if you sign up for 12 ministries. Jesus is teaching us to remain in him. If you remain in me, I'll remain in you. Be attached to the vine. And in that conversation is when Jesus says to go and bear fruit, fruit that would last. I believe the Old Testament picture of this is being in the most holy place and sitting down on that mercy seat and recognizing that Jesus has done everything he needs to do once and for all to be at peace with God. 
And it's out of that resting, it's finding that place of rest that we bear our fruit. Now, does that mean not work hard? Does that mean show up late to work? No, absolutely not. You do everything with excellence as if you are doing everything unto the Lord. Amen? So we work hard. We do things with excellence. We do things by honoring other people. But in our own quiet place, we're going to bear fruit that will last by learning how to rest on the mercy seat of the Father and let that shadow, that, that was this cherubim that was covering that seat to shadow, create a shadow on us that we can rest in Him. Now we can get a, a grasp on what the disciples were actually experiencing when Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. The way into salvation, the way into greater revelation and maturity, and the way into a life of rest where our fruit will actually last. So Jesus says, all the way back in John 14, verse 8, Philip actually says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. So Jesus like lays out this hefty statement. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. You can't get to him in the most holy place unless it's through me. And Philip's like, let's do this, Jesus. Can you just show us the Father? That's gonna be enough. Because this would have been a hard statement for them to understand. Remember, God's still in the most holy place. This is how Jesus answers him. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, Anyone who has seen me has already seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. See, Jesus had given them an all-access sneak peek VIP pass into the glory of God by following Jesus for the three and a half years that he was in ministry. And yet they weren't seeing it with their heart. They saw it with their eyes and they missed until hopefully in this time that he truly was the way, the truth, and the life into the presence of God. So we know this, if we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. This is my encouragement to you over these next several days. So if you're wondering what the character of the Father is, you're wondering why you're not getting an answer that you've been praying for, uh, you've been seeking Him for something very specific, you're just not hearing or you're confused, just look back to the life of Jesus. Start to see the Father through the life of the Son. Go back and read through one of the Gospels. Read through the red words. Just pick apart one of the miracles that he did. How he interacted with people. How he slowed down for those who were the least of these. How he rejected the elite and spent time with the, the people who were rejected by the rest of society. If we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. And I'm very confident that if we just, I encourage First Service to do this too, over the next five days, if we just set our prayer list aside. Like there are specific things with our church family I need answers for. Like I'm going to the Lord like, show me direction for this church family. But for this week, for these five days, I'm going to set those things aside. And I'm just going to worship Jesus. I'm going to believe that once I see him, I'll see the Father. I'll hear him more clearly. I'll be more confident in how to move forward. It's my invitation to you is to do the same thing. Let's just see Jesus once again. 
Let's see Jesus up on the cross. Let's see Jesus holding the children. Let's see Jesus embracing anybody that would have come to him. Let's see Jesus on the right hand of the Father. I mean, see Jesus in all these different locations and we'll see the Father. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe and go visit centralconnect.org for more information and media.